Let's continue our worship of Christ Jesus our Lord by turning in his word to John 15. I invite you to join me there in John chapter 15. On the evening of June 5th, 1944, the world was in complete and total chaos. The freedom-loving nations of the West were at war with the totalitarian and savage governments of the Axis powers, namely Germany, Italy, and Japan. The European continent had been almost entirely seized by Hitler's war machine, and many wondered if there was any hope left for freedom. A plan for a massive invasion by the Allied powers had been crafted and was to be executed the next day, June 6, 1944, a day you know as D-Day. On the night before the invasion, the highest-ranking general of the Allied powers, Dwight D. Eisenhower, made his way to the rank-and-file paratroopers of the 101st Airborne Division. He wanted to also visit the 82nd Airborne Division, but the commander of the 82nd said, no, you'll be a distraction. So he only went to the 101st, and he walked his way through the American troops winding his way from one man to another who were about to board planes and drop into France behind enemy lines, many of them never to return to fight for freedom. In the photo you see on the screen, you can see Ike talking to several paratroopers. The men asked later, what did the general say to you? He, they said, well, he just made chit-chat. He asked us our names, where we were from, talked about having been to where we were from or not, and generally tried to ease the tension of the moment. But in this particular photo, he is reiterating the main points of an order that he had sent in written form earlier in that day, the, the final written order that we are going to do this mission. I want to read that order for you. It's so very applicable to our text this morning. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade, toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us beseech the blessing of the Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. You see what Ike was doing? 
on the night before D-Day. In his words, in this order, he was rallying the troops. As he met with them face to face, reiterating that there is no option other than full victory, he is stoking the flames of their courage while being honest with them about what it would cost, about how hard it would be, but saying we will win in a similar but infinitely more glorious way. Jesus in John 15 is meeting with the troops. It's the evening before the battle which will determine the outcome of the war between God and Satan. Unlike Eisenhower, however, Jesus, the general of his army, is not prepping his disciples, his soldiers, to go in and fight. Rather, he has promised them that he will go in and he will fight and he will win the victory on their behalf. He will face down the enemy and the power of his own strength and he will overthrow the rule and reign of Satan through his death and resurrection. But he wants his disciples to know that his ultimate victory on that very next day on the cross of Calvary and through his resurrection three days later on Sunday will spark thousands of years of ongoing battles between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And he wants, Jesus desires his disciples to be ready, to know their duty, to be filled with hope while Jesus himself is absent from the earth. In light of his coming absence at the end of John 15, the beginning of John 16, Jesus speaks words that gives his apostles hope, gives his apostles purpose, and gives his apostles clarity. Jesus says this in the upper room, John 15, verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may, may remember that I told them to you. Like a wise general in an epic war, Jesus is preparing his troops for battle. He's already told them earlier in the upper room that he is soon to leave. His hour has come and he's departing. And he has taken these few precious minutes in the upper room to prepare his disciples for his absence. He told them at the beginning of chapter 15 what his relationship would be like with them when he's no longer there. Remember, he said, I am the true vine and you are the branches. You must abide in me and I in you, and then you will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He later went on and a little bit, a few verses later to tell them what their relationship would be to one another. So to Christ, they're to abide in him when he's gone. To one another when he's gone, they're to love one another as Jesus has loved them. And now, as we saw last week, he tells them how they should relate to the world, or better, how the world will relate to them. The world will hate them, will oppose them, will persecute them. And so Jesus prepares them for that reality and calls them to the hope 
that they have in light of that hatred and persecution. Our text continues that theme, but now he tells them more about their mission. He tells them how it's going to be accomplished. He gives them hope. He says there's a coming spirit of truth. And then he gives them purpose. He says, listen, I'm going to, in sending the spirit, give you a job. You're going to be my witnesses. And then in verses 1 through 4, he gives them clarity. He says, listen, even though that's going to happen, even though you're going to have the spirit and you're going to have a mission, you will be opposed. Opposed all the way to death. And I'm telling you this ahead of time so you can have clarity about what's happening. Let's consider the first thing Jesus gives the apostles in the upper room in these verses, and that is hope in verse 26. He tells them that in my absence, I'm going to send to you my spirit, the spirit of God. Notice that he does not just send the spirit into the world. Jesus says to them, I am sending the spirit to come to you. The Spirit's not generally coming into the world to, to witness generically to the truth about Jesus. No, the Spirit is coming directly to these 11 men. And we'll see that in Acts 2 when the Spirit falls upon them on the day of Pentecost and fills them and testifies to them that this is indeed true, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus says, I'm leaving, but the Spirit is coming where Jesus was separate from the apostles and that he was in another body, another human form, teaching and preaching to them. He says, the spirit will come and be in you. He will dwell in you and empower you when I am gone. He had said earlier in chapter 14, it actually would be worse for you if I stayed. You need me to go so I can send the spirit. That's better for you. The spirit will indwell you and empower you and witness to you. Notice how Jesus describes the spirit in verse 26. First, he uses the word helper. It's the Greek word paraclete, which means to come alongside for the purpose of helping and aiding. He had already told them earlier in the evening, back in chapter 14, that the helper was the Holy Spirit whom the Father would send in the name of Jesus. He told them in chapter 14 that the spirit would teach them all things and would bring to remembrance all that Jesus had said to them in his ministry. As we move further into chapter 16, we're going to find out a bunch more about what the Spirit of God has come into the world to do. But consider the promise that Jesus makes to his apostles right here. He says, I'm leaving, but don't fret, don't worry. I'm sending to you the paraclete, the helper. Notice that he is a a personality, he's a, he's a person coming to minister to these people, these apostles. And he's coming from heaven to them to help them. Second, Jesus says that he'll send the helper to them from the Father. So Jesus here pulls back the curtain of mystery a little bit between us and the triune Godhead which will live in, in eternal mystery to us. Even in our glorified state, there will be aspects of the nature and the essence of Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in one God, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, that will still astound us, will still stoke our eternal flame of worship. A million years from now in glory, you will see another aspect that you have not yet observed of the glory and goodness of the triune Godhead and you will fall in worship. 
And a billion, million years after that, it will happen again. There is great, infinite mystery to one God in three persons. But Jesus, in this verse, parts the curtain just a a little so you can catch a glimpse. And he says, I am sending this helper to you from the Father. He is coming as the Father's Spirit. He's coming to accomplish the Father's work. Jesus gives us that glimpse when he says, this is a unified work of Father, Son, and Spirit. Third, he calls the helper the Spirit of Truth. This is the ABCs of Christianity, I understand, but the Spirit of God can be called no other than the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Truth. This is his very nature. This is what makes him the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of truth. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. Now he says to his apostles, I am leaving and I am sending to you the Spirit of truth who will enter into the world and by whom lost sinners will be brought out of error and deception into light and truth. 1 John 2, verse 27, we're told that the Spirit of God anoints us and teaches us truth. Maybe you've heard it said in a ministry context, that person has a real anointing of the Spirit of God. I don't know what they mean when they say that. What Scripture means when we say that is that they know the truth and proclaim the truth. That's what the Spirit of God does. He comes upon us, anoints us, and teaches us the truth. And that's exactly what we see played out on the early, uh, in the early church on the stage of real life, isn't it? In the book of Acts. That book that should rightly be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And this is what happens. The Spirit of God comes upon these 11 men, adding in Paul in chapter 9 comes upon not just the 11 men, but also upon the church, baptizing believers, Jew and Gentile, scandalously Jew and Gentile. And what does he do when he comes upon them? He witnesses to them the truth about Jesus, that everything that has been said by the apostles about Jesus is true, that everything the apostles saw and heard from Jesus is true. The Spirit of God being God, very God, speaks the truth about all things as only God can. He is the Spirit of truth. Jesus thirdly, or fourthly says that this helper proceeds from the Father. He's the helper. He's sent from the Father. He's the Spirit of truth, and he proceeds from the Father. What Jesus means in the context is that the, the Spirit has been sent into the world on a mission by the Father. It's the same kind of language Jesus has used to speak of his own ministry, that he has come into the world at the commission of his Father. He's been sent into the world. He's on a mission. Jesus' mission was the accomplishing of our redemption, living in perfect conformity to the law, obedient to God, a sinless sacrifice, so that he could lay down his perfection, his holiness, his complete absolute keeping of all things righteous and holy. He who was righteous then could become our sin, taking upon himself 
the condemnation and the weight of our sinfulness in our place for our salvation. The Spirit of God then comes into the world to apply that redemption to lost souls, to seek out people who were not God's people, to seek out those in distant places who had not been shown mercy, to bring them mercy, namely to give them the gospel. And in bringing the gospel to them by hearing, having faith. And by having faith that this Jesus has accomplished everything needed for their soul's salvation. That is all a spirit of, God, a spirit of God's work. And that's how it is consistently presented throughout the New Testament. And that's exactly what Jesus says. The helper proceeds, comes forth from the Father. Now there's a lot of theological debate wrapped up in this verse. The ancient split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. So the, what has now today become the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. The split between those two churches rests on this verse. What is known as the Filioque Clause. And the argument was over, does the Spirit proceed out of the Father and from the Father and from the Son? The Eastern Church said the Spirit proceeds from Father and from Son from this verse. But the verse doesn't actually say that. It's a deduction from the verse. And so the Western Church said no, no. Or excuse me, the Eastern Church said no. That's the Greek Orthodox. The Western Church, the Roman Church said it does. And the Eastern Church said no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't say that. It's, the Spirit only proceeds from the Father. So they have this big schism and split and today remain unreconcilable. It's a big theological controversy, but the point of the verse is to say to you, the Spirit of God is the Spirit of the Father and of the Son coming to accomplish the triune God's work. Coming to do that which the Father and Son has sent the Spirit to do. In other words, the Spirit is the divine agent by which the will of Father and Son get accomplished on the earth after Jesus leaves. In other words, the Spirit of God is not on a rogue mission, has not decided he's going to do his own thing, seeking to hijack the plan of redemption for some other purpose. No, he's in tight unison with Father and Son. Fifth, Jesus tells us about the Spirit's mission, why it is that the Spirit came. He came to bear witness about Jesus. We'll see that again in chapter 16 where Jesus will say a, a bunch more about what this means, that he never seeks to glorify himself but speaks words of truth to glorify the Son. The Spirit was sent into the world for the mission of witnessing for Jesus. And he'll come to the apostles to witness to them about the truth about Jesus. This then gives to the apostles, these 11 hand-picked men in the upper room, about to face something they don't yet comprehend or fully know they're getting into, Jesus says, listen, you have unmatched hope. He's just told them they're going to face a world that hates them and will persecute them simply because they are servants of Jesus. And so he says, in a world that lives and breathes the lies and deceptions of their own rebellion against their master and creator, in a world where Jesus was rejected and hated and executed on a cross, in a world where to be a follower of Jesus puts you in constant conflict with the world, 
in that kind of world, Jesus says, you will not be alone. You'll not have to do this in your own strength, by your own power, according to your own wisdom, crafting your own war plan. But I will send from heaven the very spirit of God himself to come upon you and bear witness to you. Can you imagine the hope filling their hearts as they thought on this later? Throughout scripture, the father witnesses to the truth of the son in several different ways. It's important to see that this is the culmination in chapter 15 of, of those works. So Jesus himself said in John 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Luke 24, 44, after Jesus had resurrected, he appears to the apostles in hiding and he says, listen, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What does that mean? It means that the Father, through the Old Testament scriptures, testified to the truth about the Son. But there's more. It's also through Jesus' divine works. So the Old Testament scriptures are the Father's witness to the truth about Jesus. Jesus comes into the world and starts performing miraculous signs, and he interprets his own signs, and he says in John 5, 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the Old Testament scriptures validate that Jesus is the one promised. The works of Jesus in real life testify that he's the one sent from the Father. Then God spoke. He, he tore apart the realms separating heaven and earth. In John, or Matthew 17 and Matthew 3, at the baptism of Jesus and at the glorification, the, the appearance of, of Moses and Elijah to encourage Jesus. The heavens parted and God spoke and men heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Old Testament scriptures, the works of Jesus, the divine, supernatural works of Jesus, parting heaven itself to speak words that men can hear, this is my son, listen to him. Now when he ascends, now the spirit will come and be another witness about the truth about Jesus, sent from the Father to speak truth about the Son. And he says to the apostles, don't fret, don't fear, don't worry. My spirit is coming upon you. He also gives them purpose to go with their hope. It's a hope that's infused with purpose, and the best of hope has that with it. The best of hope stirs us to see that there is a purpose in the present hour, in the suffering, in the pain, in the difficulty. Hope shows us that there's a, a better day coming, but gives us things to be working toward even now for that better day. John records for us the words of Jesus in verse 27 when he says, listen, you also will be my witnesses. The Spirit will come to you to witness to you, and then you also will witness for me because you have been with me from the beginning. They will go forth and witness about the Son, that he really was the one promised in the law and the writings and the prophets, that he really is the only way to be made right with the Father. 
They will go forth as his messengers and say, listen, you alone can have forgiveness of your sin through Jesus of Nazareth. They will go and say, no one has conquered death but this one man, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the singular message sent from heaven by the Spirit through the apostles. This is so important for you to recognize and rejoice in because we're 2,000 years removed from this saying and this reality, and it still holds true. This promise is your only link as a 21st century Christian to the historical Jesus. Everything you know to be true, your faith is staked on verse 27 being true. If this did not happen, you do not know Jesus. But the Spirit of God came upon the apostles of Christ, witnessed to them the truth about Christ that they had seen and heard, reminded them of what they had seen and heard, and then compelled them to be witnesses in all of the world that it was true. And this is what Acts is all about. They go forward from the upper room, filled with the Spirit, testifying about Jesus, that he died, was buried, and rose again, thereby conquering death, soon returning as judge of all. And so in their sermons, if you read in Acts 3 and Acts 7, Acts 13, on down the line through the book of Acts, you read the sermons of the apostles, and what is their message? Jesus, born, righteous, obedient, crucified, buried, risen, coming again. And there is no other hope for eternal life but through him. They're consistent because that's what the Spirit of God does, raises them up to witness to the truth. And then the Spirit of God moved upon them or upon close associates related to them to write books, letters, records of this Jesus, the words and works of this Jesus. So all 27 books in your New Testament are tied directly to an apostle, one of these 11 men plus Paul, 12 total, called by Christ to be witnesses for Christ. Their ministry was not a ministry of five minutes or five days or five years, but of 2,000 plus and still going. Their ministry of witnessing to the truth of Jesus will last into eternity forever and ever, for the words of God are firmly fixed in the heavens. The Spirit of God moved upon them to write down the record of Jesus, and it stands this day in our world as the living testimony of the living God of our only hope for salvation. And praise God, we have it. We read it. We study it. We can understand it, and we can proclaim it. No wonder Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, when he's describing the nature of the church, that we are members of the household of God, he says, and we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So an apostolic ministry in the 21st century looks like rooting itself down into our foundation, which is the revealed testimony of the apostles, the word of God. And so this purpose to be witnesses is in one way, uniquely the task of these 11 men plus Paul. 
Notice that they're uniquely qualified for the task in verse 27. They've been with Jesus from the beginning. They're not witnessing of something they haven't themselves seen and experienced. In fact, they were raised up by Jesus for this very purpose. That's why John will say later in this very record, gospel record, as he describes the execution of Jesus, he'll say this in John 19, 35, he who saw it, speaking of himself, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth that you also may believe. 21, 24, John will again say, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who, is, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Remember how he starts his first letter, 1 John 1? He starts out by describing his qualifications. It's like a resume to be able to write to the church. He says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. Beloved, you do not have a faith that is staked upon my testimony today. False religions have testimonies staked upon what they claim to be recent revelations of false prophets who Stand up and say, I have received a new word from the Lord. And those false religions are propagated by people within them who stand up weekly in their gatherings and say, listen, this is how our prophet has been at, move, at work in my life and the words of that prophet have, have been confirmed to me and they call it their time of testimony. And it's validating to their deceitful doctrine of demons that they as a gathering are on the right track. I don't stand here today to tell you of, of my experience, that, though that is valid too because it's in line with the apostles. I stand here today to tell you of their eyewitness account validated by the very Spirit of God codified in sacred literature, the Bible, for us to always have and always know, always to be tested he put it in writing so that every generation could have it, could look into it and investigate it and find it to be true. And everyone who has honestly come to this book has found it to be absolutely true. Jesus is the Christ. This is what we see happening in the book of Acts. Why don't you turn with me quickly to Acts 4. Acts chapter 4 is over a few pages in your Bible. Acts 4, remember in Acts 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple. They, hear, they heal the lame beggar. Peter seizes on the opportunity and preaches in the temple court. The chief priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, are greatly annoyed, Acts 4.2 says, because they were teaching and proclaiming that in Jesus there was resurrection from the dead. That is the issue in the book of Acts, by the way. It is all about the resurrection. It's one of the greatest Easter books in your Bible that shows you the evidence of the resurrection and the proclamation of the resurrection and the effect of the resurrection. They're proclaiming the resurrected Christ and they don't like that, so they, they seize them, they arrest them, and they try to intimidate them in front of the council. Look at verse 19, after they had threatened them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Why did John and Peter say that? Because of what Jesus promised in John 15, 27. The Spirit of God had come upon these men, had witnessed to them the truth of Jesus, and they could do no other. No matter what it cost them, and you know it would cost every one of these men their lives. They would die for standing true to the testimony of Christ. In the absence of Jesus, as he dies, the substitutionary death for sinners, resurrects from the grave, is ascended to the right hand of the Father because his work on earth is done. Jesus wants them to know ahead of time, my absence will not produce a truth vacuum. I'm leaving, but there will not be an absence in which the world will no longer know what's true. But in my absence, I am sending my spirit of truth upon you to be my witnesses to the truth, to accomplish my purposes in every generation, and to build my church. Glorious hope filled with glorious purpose. But as he gives them hope and a purpose, he also says, listen, you need to know it's going to come because of that. He gives them clarity. He speaks the truth to them in verses 1 through 4 back in John chapter 16. He pre-interprets their problems. Wouldn't you love to have that reality in your life? Or tell me ahead of time what, how I should think about that. That's what he does for his apostles in the upper room. He says, listen, this is going to come upon you. I want to tell you why it's going to happen. He says in verse 1, I'm telling you this so that you know what's to come so that it will keep you from falling away. The word for falling away is scandalizo, to scandalize. It, it means to be caught in a trap. To have a trap sprung on you that you didn't see and weren't expecting. And that could be detrimental, obviously, to the apostles' faith and to their faithfulness, more likely. And in fact, in just a few hours, a few minutes, really, from this saying of Jesus, as you get to the end of 17, the beginning of chapter 18, they will in some way have a trap sprung on them, not because Jesus didn't tell them, but because they just didn't get it. The soldiers will show up and arrest Jesus, and they'll all flee. They'll deny Jesus by their absence, and some by their words, namely Peter. They'll be scandalized, tripped up, not falling away, but tripped up. Jesus says, I don't want that to, to happen to you. I don't want you as my followers to think that you're entering into some ticker tape parade celebrating my victory over hell on earth. That my death, burial, and resurrection is going to lead immediately to the kingdom. And you remember in Acts 1, when he appears to the disciples and is getting ready to leave, and what's the question on their mind? Do you remember? Lord, are you now going to set up your kingdom? Like They're still working through the words of Jesus of John in the upper room, and they, they kind of think, okay, that was enough suffering this, you know, couple of days, couple of weeks. We're done, right? You're, you're going to bring the kingdom now, right? The ticker tape parade's beginning, right? All the trumpets of heaven are about to blow. We're all going to rejoice together, and the, the trial's over, right? What does Jesus say? The time nor the hour is neither for you to know nor worry about. But you shall be my witnesses. 
in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, Jesus in that moment does not want them to be caught off guard by the reality of their purpose combined with the reality of their suffering. He's spoken clearly to them to let them know you're entering in through a narrow gate and the way will be hard and few there will be that will find it and walk with you. But the way will lead ultimately to eternal life. This is the only way. He's forewarning them that they're not taken back. By the way, I would exhort you in your presentations of the good news of the gospel to make clear to those you are talking to for the sake of their soul that they will not one day be scandalized by the world and its opposition. That you tell them, as Jesus did, this is a narrow way. The way in is singular through Jesus. And it's going to be hard. People will oppose you. People in your own home will oppose you if you become a disciple of Jesus. But this is the only way. There's not a a lesser, easier way. This is the way. So come to Christ, but know that in coming to Christ, you're entering into a war. And it will be difficult and hard. We need to be honest with those that we're speaking with. We don't need the light and fluffy prosperity gospel of American evangelicalism by which we say Jesus is your ticket to your best life and a happy way and a, a wonderful wife and tremendous family and your best job and your highest paycheck and Jesus will give you all these things. Just believe on him. You're like, well, I would never say that to anyone. Well, you wouldn't, but we're also slow to say this is going to cost you everything. This is going to cost you everything. It's worth it because you give up everything here and you gain everything there. So it's really not much of an exchange, but you have to know that's what has to happen. You have to let go of everything here to gain everything there by faith in Christ. But no, it's going to cost you everything you have. Jesus tells them in verse 2 that they'll be put out of the synagogues. He says you'll even be martyred by the Jewish people who think they're offering service to God. Alfred Edersheim in his commentary on this text says that in the rabbinical writings of the first century, they had had the privilege in the synagogues to immediately put to death a zealot who was a danger to the truth of what they viewed to be the truth. So if a synagogue had someone in their midst who rose to the level of, of a zealot who became a danger... They had the authority under rabbinical law to put that person to death in the name of God for the service of God. Jesus tells them that ahead of time. They're going to think they're doing the right thing and they'll put you to death. This is exactly what Saul was doing in Acts 9, correct? On his way to Damascus, he took with him letters from the high priest. Why? He wanted to find men or women who held to the name of and teaching of Jesus. Any of them belonging to the way is the way Luke says it in Acts 9. Why? So you might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Well, why in Jerusalem? To, to indoctrinate them with Judaism again? No, to 
force them to recant or put them to death. We saw that in Acts 7 in Stephen. This is the the opposition of the world, even the religious world, to the messengers of the gospel. They think by stopping the messenger, they will stop the message. Praise be to God, we have a, a gospel that's greater and bigger and more powerful than any one person overcomes any one or all of the enemies put together. Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel of Christ in any generation. You can kill every servant you know who knows Jesus and claims his name and refuses to deny him, and you will not stop the gospel. The story is told of, by Eusebius, the early church historian, of this kind of persecution in a town of Lyon, France. The 170s AD, Marcus Aurelius was the Roman emperor. Persecution wasn't actually all that terrible in this season, but in this specific town of Lyon, France, something got into the water and they were just convinced they needed to get rid of all the Christians. And so they arrested 47, 48 of them, put them in jail and basically asked them, Are you a Christian? Yes, I stand with Christ. Then you have to stay in jail. As the hatred of the Christians rose, they realized that this was going to probably end in their martyrdom. Irenaeus was a shepherd, elder, pastor of this church in Lyon, France. He made his way to Rome to get an ear with Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, because he thought that he could convince him to put an end to the persecution. While he was gone, all 47, 48, whatever the number was, were marched out in front of the town and asked, are you a Christian? Yes, and they were all killed. And guess what? The gospel advanced. The, seed, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. All 12 of our founding fathers, to say it that way, the apostles of Christ, were put to death or severely hindered in their ministry. All of them died for claiming Christ, minus John the apostle, who was just imprisoned until he died. Did that stop the gospel? Did that thwart the work? No, we sit today as validation of their ministry. And this is validation of the apostles' ministry that they would face this opposition. Christ tells them ahead of time so that they would know when it comes, you're doing the right thing. Everyone in the church broadly today wants the Spirit of God to fill their ministry, to empower them, to mark their ministry as a Spirit-filled ministry. You hear language like we want an apostolic ministry. We want to be blessed by the Spirit. We want to do great things for the Lord. To bring it home to to roost here in our own hearts, we all want to be filled with the Spirit of God. If you're in Christ, you're baptized by the Spirit. The Spirit of God does indwell you. But to be further controlled by the Spirit of God, to have more of your life run by him and less of it run by you is all our heart's desire. We want our parenting to be spirit-filled parenting. 
We want our teaching and our ministry in the church to be spirit-filled ministry. We want our relationships with our neighbors to be spirit-filled ministry and relationships. We want God, by his spirit, to move us along according to his will to accomplish his purposes. And if that is our desire, listen, one of the most obvious results of that will be we will be witnesses for Christ. When the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God, witnessing to them about the truth of the Son, he makes them witnesses for him. They can't help it. They have to tell the truth about their loving Lord, calling others to faith and salvation found only in him. So, Church of Jesus Christ, this is the way. This mission and purpose given to the apostles is carried along today by you and me. We stand in the gap and proclaim the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection and his soon return. And this is his mark upon us. How will you know if you're filled, controlled, and empowered by the Spirit of God in all of life? Well, there's other marks of his ministry. His fruit will be in you. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, patience, long-suffering, self-control. Those will come out of you as well by his Spirit's work in you. But you will be compelled to be his witnesses, which will be met by opposition from the world, namely the religious world. You say, well, America's getting less religious, so we shouldn't face as much opposition. No, America's getting more religious. It's just with a a religion and a God of their own making, detached from any tie to scripture or any former truth. Worshiping the God of self and creating a, a gospel which celebrates sexual freedom as though that were the highest liberation of the human soul and the highest transcendence of experience in this world. A false gospel and a false religion, but it is a religion nonetheless, and I guarantee you they're coming after the church. As the church stands in the gap and says, listen, that is not the right gospel. That will not save you. That will put you into God's condemnation for all of eternity. Much of the world will hate and oppose that message, but some will be one. Some will see and hear Jesus Christ through the church and be added to our number and born into the family of God and be forever displays of the grace of God. And if the Spirit of God is upon the church of God, that will happen through us. So, beloved, like good soldiers anticipating our D-Day, Let's get on the plane, jump out, pull the parachute behind enemy lines, and work for our Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your truth and your grace, rescuing us for your purpose. Thank you for the hope of your Holy Spirit upon us, who compels us to speak of our Lord, to suffer for our Lord, and even one day maybe dying for our Lord. Father, would you make us to be good soldiers? 
faithful ambassador, useful and fit for your service. And Lord, through us, would you expand your grace to more and more to your eternal praise. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name.